This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. If you have your Bibles with you, please open to the book of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, on your way out, we have extra Bibles that we'd love just to bless you with, so please grab one of those as our gift to you today. And, uh, but don't worry, you'll be able to follow along this morning because we'll have this projected as well. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, we are going to be in verses 19 through 22. Today, we're bringing to a close the series that we've been in, that we've entitled Sacred Rest, The Rhythm of Renewal. Throughout this series, we have been looking at what the Bible tells the church to do when we gather together on Sunday, what Scripture calls the Lord's Day. Sunday is called the Lord's Day because it was on a Sunday that Jesus rose from the grave, vindicating himself as the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and the living head of his church. And ever since that glorious Easter morning 2,000 years ago, followers of Jesus have set aside Sunday as a day of gathering together to worship God for the rest and renewal of our souls. So for example, in Revelation chapter 1 verse 10, it talks about how John was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Jesus has forever changed Sunday from being just like any other day of the week. Sunday has forever been changed to the Lord's day. The day where the church is to gather in his worship. And as we gather in his worship, this brings refreshment to us. This breathes spiritual life into us. It is a sacred rest for us. However, if we ended this series by only considering what this day is meant to do for us, I think we'd be missing something crucial. Because God does not want us to come together just for our comfort, only for our comfort, but also because as his church, we have received a commission. God is doing something through the gathering of his church, and he wants to use each one of us to be part of this glorious purpose. I was once friends with someone who liked to do wood carving, and he would often take a piece of wood and say, hey, Jeff, what do you see? And I'd be like, I see a piece of wood. And then I'd ask him, what do you see? He's like, well, I see a bird in this one. I see a fox, or I see a landscape, or I see a portrait of someone I'm going to do. And then he would just begin to carve, and, and what he saw would turn into this beautiful piece of art. Maybe when you think about church, all you think about is this kind of plain block of wood. But today, I think through his word, God wants us to see the church through his eyes. And to see the beautiful thing that he is carving, the beautiful thing that he is making for the glory of his name. And so I'm entitled this morning's church, uh, this morning, uh, sermon, God's Vision for His Church. God's Vision for His Church. My hope and prayer is as we see God's vision for His church today, that we'd understand the great part that each one of us gets to play in it. Let's read together in God's holy word, Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints 
and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Praise God for his word may be with us now through the empowering presence of his Holy Spirit to bless the preaching of his word. All glory be to Christ. What Ephesians chapter 2 is telling us is that when God sees his church, he does not see an institution, nor does he see various social programs or even different kinds of events. What God sees when he sees his church is he sees his holy temple. Now, that might get lost on us sitting here in modern day Philadelphia. I don't know how many of us enter into temples on a regular basis in our life. For me, all I know from you know, my cultural experience of a temple would be what I learned from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Like, uh, it's not something we have a lot of cultural reference points for. But, but from a biblical perspective, the temple of God is an incredible thing. When King Solomon first built the original temple in Jerusalem, this is what we read in Second Chronicles. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. The glory of God's presence is like the sun and that it can't be looked at because its brilliance is too much to behold. And so God's presence is so glorious that we're told in Scripture, even the sinless angels in heaven have to shield their eyes from its radiance. And so when the glory of God's presence descended on the temple in Jerusalem, no one could enter into it. It wasn't until God's presence was only in the Holy of Holies, separated from the rest of the temple by a curtain. It was contained in the innermost part of the temple, but it was still there, but separated. And then it was then that people could come and begin to worship God. But the temple was where the presence of God's glory dwelt on earth. Theologian Greg Beale, commenting on this, says, The temple was the place in all the world where heaven was linked to earth. What a profound thing this is. And anyone could come from around the world and worship God in the temple. There were different sections for different peoples. But as God says in Isaiah chapter 56, 7, My house should be called a house of prayer for all peoples. See, it was at the temple, at this place where heaven touched earth, that people could come and worship God. But now fast forward to the New Testament. And Jesus comes. And this is what Jesus says about the temple in John chapter 2. He's speaking to the Jewish leaders of his day. And he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you will rise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. You see, when Jesus came, since he is fully God, fully man, Jesus is the presence of God, for he is God, and he is saying that he himself is now this temple. That the glory of God's presence dwells within himself. He is fully God, and yet he's fully man. And so Jesus is literally heaven embodied, touching earth. The holy temple of God dwelt in him. 
And yet, amazingly, what Ephesians chapter 2 is telling us is that since our faith in Jesus unites us to Jesus, we put our faith in Christ, we're not just trusting in someone, we're becoming united to who he is. And so as our faith in Jesus unites us to Jesus, we now also have become part of the holy temple of God. The temple of God is no longer a place in Jerusalem. When we come together as God's church, church meaning a gathering or an assembled people, when we come together, God uses the individual bricks of our lives to build together His holy dwelling place. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18 verse 23, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. That word gathered is the same word that gets translated throughout the Bible as congregation. It's the same word that gets used in Hebrews chapter 10, 25 when we are commanded not to neglect to meet together. Jesus isn't given a magical number when he says two or three. He's talking about the congregating of the church, the assembling of his people. God is with us individually, everywhere and always, to be sure. But there is a unique way that God's presence dwells in us, in us together, when we are assembled here in person as his church. This is why the gathering of the church is so beautiful and so crucial. Theologian Edward Clowney says it this way, reverent corporate worship, corporate worship meaning what we're doing corporately together, not individually in our homes, but corporately together, reverent corporate worship is not optional for the church of God. It's not a form of group behavior to be accepted just because of its long tradition. Rather, this reverent corporate worship brings to expression the very being of the church. It manifests on earth the reality of the heavenly assembly. See, what he is saying is that we don't come together just because this is what Christians have traditionally done on Sundays. We come together because coming together is what it means by definition to be a church. To be a church means to assemble. And as we do, as we come together, assemble together, and worship God, we are doing this as His holy temple. The presence of God that once dwelt behind a curtain in the Holy of Holies now dwells here in our assembly. Friends, it is through the church that heaven now touches earth. What a profound and amazing thing it is. No wonder the preacher Charles Spurgeon said that the church is the dearest place on earth. Now I know that it doesn't always feel this way. I'm not very far removed from having young children and I remember the days where being kept up all night by their crying and rolling out of bed trying to find clothes and can't finding anything because who has time to do laundry when you have young kids running around and you finally find a shirt that's clean, you put it on, your kid throws up on it on the way to church and then you, know, you get to church and they've pooped out and they're only you know, outfit they had left and you're just like, what is the point of this? Why am I even doing this? 
I remember being in college and being up late studying all night before because I had to get a paper in and being like, why do I need to be there? You know, uh, if we had a live stream, I definitely would be checking that out a lot more back in those days. Well, why do I even need to come? You know, it's easier just to stay home and, and, and check the box, but then, you know, spend my time writing my paper. Like, I, I know what it's like to, to be in a conflict and to feel like there's just relational tension and it's just easier not to be around people right now. It, church doesn't always feel glorious. But friends, we need to see the church, not with eyes of our flesh, but with eyes of faith. We need to see the church from God's perspective. He sees that throw-up stained parent gathering together with people, exhausted, and yet here by faith. God sees that happening, and he sees his presence there, and he says it's glorious. Pastor David Platt says it this way, we have a dangerous tendency to let what we're doing in this room become routine and lose sight of the fact that week after week after week, as we gather together, we are doing something that is so awesome, so distinct, so different than anything else we do all week long. We are worshiping God as His holy temple. I think it's hard for us sometimes in our individually minded, consumer driven culture of America to have this perspective. I think we have a lot to learn from our brothers and sisters overseas and their understanding of church. I have a friend who has a, a pastor friend in China that he was recently talking to and you might not be aware but we need to really pray for China. This is nothing new uh, but it's essentially illegal to be a Christian there. Um, you cannot teach the Bible or preach the gospel without it being kind of state sanctioned as they keep a tight grip on religion. And so most of the true churches and faithful churches are called underground churches or secret churches. They have to meet in private. This one pastor had been beaten multiple times after leaving the gathering of God's church. He got found out by the police, and he was beaten for what he was doing. His, one of his children had been put in jail, and to this day, he's not sure if they are alive or dead. He hasn't seen them for years. And my friend was just asking him a question, like, why do you still gather? Why is that risk worth it to you? Why are you putting yourself in that danger? Why are you putting your family in that kind of danger? Why would you put other people in your community in that kind of danger? As you're trying to call them together to come. This faithful pastor said, because there is nothing more precious than being in the presence of God in his holy dwelling place, the church. Friends, we have so much to learn from our brothers and sisters on the other parts of the world. So what I'm hoping all this is leading to is, 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 is leading us to ask this question. If we are meant to be God's holy dwelling place, the place in all the world where now heaven touches earth, if the church is meant to grow itself up and being the temple of God, how do we do that? How do we do that? Notice that verse 21 says that we're, the whole structure is being joined together. It grows into the temple of the Lord. So we are the temple of the Lord, something that we already are, but it's also something that we should be building and growing into. So how do we do that? What does it look like to build together a temple that gives worship to God as his church? How do we do that? Well, I think there are three things that this passage lays out for us. Three things about how we build the church. First, don't be a stranger. Don't be a stranger. Verse 19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Two contrasts are being made here. 
The first is between someone who is foreign to a place and someone who is a citizen of a place. Now, the primary part here, uh, point here that he's talking about is, is those who are now part of God's covenant people. But I think there's a specific reason that the Lord inspired Paul to use these types of metaphors to talk about being part of God's church. You see, a foreigner can travel to another country and spend some time there. They can go on a sightseeing trip. They can take a couple selfies at some landmarks that they can post on Instagram. They can travel through a country, but they can't do anything to actually take a meaningful part in shaping that country. It's the citizens who get to vote. It's the citizens who can hold public office. It's the citizens who direct the, 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 the shaping of their homeland. Listen, you can't make a difference in a place that you're only passing through. You can't make a difference in a place that you only occasionally show up to. Having an impact comes from being consistently present over time. And this is how we are to see ourselves when it comes to the local church. If we want to build something together for the glory of God, then we need to be consistently present over time. If only, you know, if you only ever occasionally show up, if you're constantly moving around, different churches doing different things, you might be getting some spiritual benefit for yourself, but you are not making an impact for the church of God. God does not want us to be sightseeing tourists who come to church just for what we get out of it, but citizens who feel responsibility to contribute our time, talent, and treasures to the building of it. We're not meant to be strangers on the go, but citizens who have some roots. If you want to make a difference in a place, you got to get some roots down into it. The second contrast, so first, first is talking about a foreigner and a citizen. The second is talking about an alien, someone who's unknown, and says a family member, someone part of a household. Being a citizen is meant to refer to time and commitment, but being a family member refers to being well-known. In ancient times, you're part of the same household, usually literally meant you were in the same household. Like, households were kind of one big common room where everyone ate and slept in the same place. You want to talk about getting to know someone really well, try doing that. To be a family member was to be really well known, to be vulnerable, to be in some ways exposed, but caring for one another and coming together. And so part of being a church means not just that we have some roots, it also means that we build some relationships. Some relationships where we're known. Some relationships where we're vulnerable. Some relationships where people can care for us because they actually know what's happening in our lives. I am so grateful that the friends who know me best and are most current in my life, my joys, my sorrows, my sins, and my struggles, they're all sitting in this room, part of this church. Now, that took some time to develop those relationships. I wouldn't have said that, you know, seven years ago. And developing those relationships didn't happen just by coming together for church once a week, you know, for an hour or so. No, it's people who came here, and I met them through them coming here. And then as they came here consistently over time, as they put down some roots, we began to build deeper relationships. And coming here led to coming to a small group. And then coming to a small group led to us getting together one-on-one. And then getting together one-on-one led to, you know, watching Eagles game together, which is a great way to bond because misery loves company. Um, and you just build relationships intentionally. 
And these relationships are just so crucial, are so crucial to us growing and being all that God wants us to be. You can be a brick by yourself. You can't be a building by yourself. God wants us to be part of his building. He wants us to take the individual bricks of our lives to build something together that's glorious. And and if the individual bricks of our lives are meant to build something together for the glory of God, then it's our relationships with each other that's meant to be the mortar that holds those bricks together, that binds us to one another. See, if we want to build ourselves into a holy temple for God, then we need to embrace that we're not meant to be strangers who are passing through or aliens who are not known. We need to put down some roots and we need to give time to building some relationships. We can't be strangers. Point number two, if we want to build together God's church, is we need to love like Jesus. Verse 20 says that the cornerstone of the church is Jesus. In ancient times, the cornerstone was the first stone that would be laid, and the rest of the house would be built upon that stone and using that stone as its reference point. And so the whole cornerstone is what gave direction to the whole rest of the building of the entire structure. Jesus is the one that we are to look to to give direction to the building of his church. It's his example that we are to follow in. Paul will go on to say it this way in Ephesians chapter 4. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, body now talking to the church, um, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Growing as a church is not just about growing numerically, but growing spiritually by building ourselves up and being a place where the love of God is felt. And how is the love of God felt? Through us loving one another. See, what we're after, what we're trying to build together is a community of love. How the church brings glory to God and is a witness to the world and how we know and experience the presence of God in our midst is through the love that we have for one another. Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. God wants our love for each other to be so otherworldly, so supernatural, so beyond anything that this world knows that the only explanation can be, man, God must be in their midst. Our next sermon series is actually going to be all about this. We're going to be camping out and taking a deep dive into 1 Corinthians 13. And looking at how God defines love and what it means for us to build a culture of gospel love together as a church. But as we close out this series, where we are focusing on what God tells us to do as we gather as a church, I think direct application for how we can love one another when we gather together. That's the question we should be asking. What does it look like for us to love one another as we gather together? A direct application is this. When you read the New Testament, What gets repeated over and over and over again in six different places by three different authors, few things get repeated in so many different places, so many different times. You know what gets repeated? This command, greet one another. Greet one another. Why is greeting so emphasized by God? Because we're told in Romans chapter 15, verse 7, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. 
Friends, when we gather together, part of why God wants us to be together is so that we can love one another by embodying the welcoming presence of Christ to each other. Greeting others is a sacred act. Saying hi, it's good to see you. I don't think I've met you before. My name is, and introducing yourself to someone you don't know, or, or talking to a friend and saying, hey, how are you doing? How's your week been? That's not just being nice. That is being the presence of Christ to someone and showing his heart for them. I remember a testimony from about five years ago in our church. There's someone who came out. They've been going through some really hard things, and they were not Christians. Uh, but they were searching because they, were just, they, they, felt a, they felt a need for something in their life. But, but they came out to our church, and they'd never been in church before. And so being here was very uncomfortable for them, and they were about to get up and leave. Um, they came in a little bit before the service, and, uh, and they, they weren't even going to stay. But someone from our church saw them sitting by themselves. We should be seeing people that are sitting by themselves. So someone saw them sitting by themselves, went over, and intentionally took time to greet them, meet with them, and sat with them. And so because the person was sitting with them and talking with them, they felt like they couldn't leave. And so they ended up staying for the service. They come back the next week for the service, the week after that, the week after that, and they came to know Jesus. And we baptized them in the church. And then she went out to go to medical school in Georgia, and now she's part of a church plant in South Carolina. Friends, your hello to someone can change the directory of their life. So greet someone new every week. Maybe it's not someone who's new to the church. Maybe it's just someone that you don't know that well. I think, you know, we're continuing to grow as a church. And there can be people that like, oh, I see them all the time. But I'm not sure I've actually talked to them or, or I know their names that well. I, I'm not sure. Like, greet them. Meet them. Get to know them. You know, talk to your friends after you greet someone new. Because the new people generally leave quicker. So, like, your friends will stay. Like, talk, talk to people who are new first. And then, and, then, and then greet. Talk with your friends. Spend time. Linger after the service. Parents, lead your kids in doing this. Something that Angie and I regularly talk about around our Sunday dinner, uh, lunch table with our kids is like, hey, who did you meet this week that's new? Who's going to be trying to teach our kids that we don't just come here about us. We come here to, to, to meet and greet others. Create, create a, a welcoming culture as part of your family culture. This isn't just about being friendly. This is about worshiping God as his holy temple. So show up 15 minutes early. And don't rush out right after the service. What happens in these times is significant. You might have noticed we don't have people who walk around with like, you know, greeter on their badge. Like that, that's like their ministry role. And our mission there is, is intentional. We want to be a church where every member feels that they're on the greeting team. They don't need a badge because that's not just someone else's job. That's what we're all meant to do as we gather together. Part of our ministry to each other when we gather is to greet one another in Christ. This is one of the many reasons why it's so crucial for us to be together in person. Digital connection can provide some forms of personal spiritual edification, but that's all it is, personal spiritual edification. It does not give you the opportunity to be part of what God is doing. It does not give you the opportunity to have a human connection and to be the presence of Christ to someone. In order to be the presence of Christ to someone, you have to be in the presence of someone. In order to express God's love to one another, to build together a community of his love, we need to be with each other. 
And so we look to Christ as our cornerstone. We try to orient our lives around him. If we want to build together a church where he is worshipped, a holy temple where his presence dwells, and the fame of God is made known to our city, then we need to look to Christ as our cornerstone. We need to not be strangers, and we need to learn to love like Jesus. But that's not all that we need. Final point this morning is we need to build on the foundation of Jesus. See, the cornerstone in ancient times was not just what you built the whole structure off of as your reference point. It was that, but it was also the foundation that the whole structure rested upon. Friends, everything that we do for Jesus must rest upon the foundation of what Jesus has done for us. The unique message of Christianity is that we're never left just with here's what you need to do. We're always pointed back to how we're able to do what God calls us to do is through being empowered by what Christ has done. We need to build on the foundation of Jesus. We will run into trouble if we try to do things for Jesus without resting in what Jesus has done for us. We will get burnt out if we are constantly trying to do things to please Christ without understanding how God is already pleased with us in Christ based upon the finished work of Christ. We're just hardwired to be kind of performance-based people, aren't we? We, we feel like we need to do certain things in order to, to build some sort of sense of ourselves, And so I need to do certain things in order to achieve this status. Or I need to do certain things so that I'm not a failure. I need to do certain things to be worthy. I need to do certain things to be accepted. All these different talk tracks go in our mind. And we bring that into our relationship with God. But friends, none of that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news that we are accepted, loved, and cherished not because of how we perform. Not because we are good enough, not because we have done enough, but because Jesus and what he has done is enough. That's the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus lived the perfect life that we never could. So that his perfection could be credited to our account and our failures could be clothed over by his righteousness. The gospel is that Jesus died the death that we deserve so that our debt of death for our life of sin could be paid for by him on the cross. And the gospel is that Jesus has proven that his life and death are enough to accomplish our salvation because he is no longer dead but risen from the grave. This is the good news of Christ. This is the good news of Christ. That his sinless life is enough to cover over our sinful life. His death on the cross is enough to pay for our sins. You might come into this gathering this morning with regrets. You might come into this gathering this morning with an acute awareness of your failures. You might come into this gathering with struggles. You might come into this gathering with persistent temptations and accusations of Satan want to tell you that you will never be enough. But friends, the gospel of Jesus says he is always more than enough for you. And we must build our lives upon him as our foundation. Because if we don't, we'll always be bouncing between self-justification and self-pity. Self-justification. God loves me because I do all this stuff for him. I'm justified because of all that I do. Or self-pity, God's upset with me because all I haven't done and all I've screwed up. And we go back and forth. 
what the gospel of Jesus tells us is that we should not get too high on ourselves, nor should we get too low on ourselves. What we need to do is get over ourselves and look to Christ. Robert Murray McChain says it this way so well. Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Infinite majesty. And yet such meekness and grace and all for sinners, even the worst, live in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eyes settle on you in love and rest in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in Him. Friends, this is what we gather to do as a church. We gather to build ourselves more and more on Jesus and the beauties and excellencies of who He is and all that we have in Him. Through our reading of Scripture, through our singing, through our praying, through our experience of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, through our participation in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, through us welcoming one another and fellowshipping together, through all these things, what we are doing is we are grounding ourselves further upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Something I pray for regularly on a Sunday morning in the privacy of my office is that, Lord, as people come limping into service today, May they leave floating on the gospel. This is what we want to be about as a church. We want to be a church that doesn't leave with a laundry list of things we need to do. We want to be a church that is built upon the good news of what Christ has done. And as that good news soaks into us and rings out from our souls, that's what empowers us to do and be the people God has called us to be. If we want to build ourselves more and more into the holy temple of God, a place where God's presence is felt, where people, no matter who they are, can gather to worship, then this needs to be our foundation, friends. We need to build ourselves on the foundation of the gospel of Christ. I want to close with this. In 1961, our country was at a significant crossroads. Some of you might remember this time. It was the height of our Cold War with the Soviet Union. And our country was really being gripped with fear. Our economy was being driven into the dirt as we expended previously unfathomable amounts of money on nuclear stockpiles. JFK had just been elected president. And he felt a burden to rise to this moment of history and to rally the flagging American spirit to meet the perils of their day. And so he gave an inaugural speech where he was honest and frank about the challenges that faced the country. But he was resilient in his belief about what the country could be and how he would prevail. And so you might remember how he famously ended that speech with a call. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Friends, we have some perils that are facing us as a church in America, no doubt. And I want to be frank and honest with you about them. We live 
in a culture that is growing increasingly hostile to the Christian faith. There are many Christians who have abandoned their Christianity and biblical convictions and have compromised to the fallacies of being deconstructionists and reinterpreting the gospel of Jesus in a way that resembles nothing of what actually the Bible says. Commitment to God's church and faithfully being together has been flagging for years and then COVID hit and has made it even worse. As many people have gone into the crevices and cracks of their individual lives and don't regularly come together to be God's holy temple anymore. We are the only country in the world where Christianity is not growing more year over year, but is actually decreasing in number. We have challenges that are in front of us, no doubt. And I know that you are facing probably some personal challenges of your own. Things you're having a hard time seeing the other side of. Burdens that you've carried with you into this gathering. Friends, despite all these challenges, I still believe the words of Jesus are true. When he said that on the rock of his gospel, he will build his church and not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. And so may we give our lives to building something that is bigger than any one of us and that by God's grace will outlast all of us. May we give our lives to building together God's church, to growing more and more into the holy temple, the heavenly outpost, the beachhead for the mission of God that he wants to use to embody his love to a lost and dying world. Friends, may we not just think about what the church can do for us, but about what we can give our lives to doing for the church, to building together this community of love to the glory of the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus Christ. May we do this until our Lord's return. May you find us faithful. And may he do things beyond what any of us could possibly imagine. Let's bow our heads in prayer.